The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Today, uh, I want to revisit an issue that we've uh, talked about on quite a few podcasts um, before, which is, I think, still percolating and still really one of the foremost issues of the time, uh, which is uh, reproductive freedom. Um, obviously, the Dobbs decision uh, it was a major kind of defeat for that. Um, but amid the decision, there were these sort of consoling liberal voices saying, well, we don't need to worry uh, so much like obviously the red states will be bad, but you know, uh, we'll have um, uh, in the blue states, uh, things will be protected, and also even in the red states, there'll be like abortion pills. Um, and I, I think some of that sort of consoling language didn't, you know, come to terms with um, the reality of the anti choice movement in the United States, which is very radical. Um, which did a very radical thing in like you know, in its sort of 50 year effort. Uh, to change the nature of the Supreme Court and to overturn Roe v. Wade, um, which was, uh, I you know, would, would remind listeners, um, you know, like a law that had been uh, supported by seven out of nine uh, Supreme Court justices when it was uh, made. And then later, the essential right to choice was um, supported by another decision, Casey, in the early 1990s. Uh, and so to like overturn two Supreme Court decisions, uh, you know, made uh, uh, is, is a very radical thing. But a movement that did that is not going to stop with a sort of, you know, patchwork federalist solution. They Their goal is to end reproductive freedom, and they will do whatever they can. And I think in this sort of recent months, we've seen the kind of emergence of legal warfare as a, a primary tactic on a number of fronts to really create an atmosphere where it's not just in red states, but in uh, blue states and in um, uh, not just the sort of um, medical abortions, uh, but uh, even, you know, the access to pills uh, that facilitate abortions that are that are being limited. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a really radical movement. And I think one of the best people that's sort of been tracking this is uh, Guardian columnist uh, Moira Donegan, uh, who uh, I'm very happy to have uh, on again. She's a frequent uh, guest. And uh, um, I want to start with this sort of like Texas uh, law um, or this Texas um, legal case that's happening that she recently wrote about in The Guardian, uh, which I, I think has like all sorts of implications. Yeah, thank you, G, so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I wish it was a, a happier occasion, but I think you don't really invite me on when there's good news. Uh, <laughs> well, in the future, but... I'll, I'll try, 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 try. Like if, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll do our uh, best. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's. I wrote uh, last week about a court case out of Amarillo, Texas. It's a federal court case where a group of anti-abortion uh, sort of associations, nominally associated with doctors, uh, are suing the FDA, uh, saying that the FDA improperly uh, approved a drug that is used in the majority of American abortions called mifepristone. Mifepristone uh, has been approved by the FDA for about 20 years. It was approved in over 20 years. It was approved in 2000. So this is a bit of a a tardy lawsuit. Um, it was actually kind of its adoption in the U.S. was delayed largely for political reasons. It was originally developed in France in the 1980s, uh, and it works by blocking the hormone progesterone, uh, which uh, causes a, a pregnancy to stop developing. And used in tandem with another drug called uh, misoprostol, 
which causes contractions. It is incredibly safe and effective in terminating pregnancies. It is approved in the U.S., I believe, up to 10 weeks by the FDA. The World Health Organization approves it up to 12. Functionally, we know that it is used much later in pregnancy for, than that uh, with, with great effectiveness. Um, it's profoundly safe, uh, and it really revolutionized abortion care around the world because it does not require a, a surgical intervention through the cervix, as mm. most abortion techniques do. Um, and, you know, the thing about abortion pills is that they can be taken in the privacy of your home. Uh, you can miscarry at home on your own time, and you can not tell anybody if you don't have to. And, mm. you know, these drugs... Their aftermath is medically indistinguishable from a miscarriage. If you have to go to the emergency room, most people don't, but some people do, uh, often because they are afraid that they're bleeding too much. Um, but if you do wind up in an emergency room after having taken these pills, um, if you don't tell your medical providers that you took this medication, they can't tell. Mm -hmm. So it is, you know, largely undetectable, incredibly effective, incredibly safe. Uh, and the anti-abortion movement absolutely fucking hates it um, because it has made particularly illegal abortions a lot safer. So up in the lead up to Dobbs, particularly, especially after the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett in 2020, uh, you really saw this shift in messaging from the pro-choice movement, groups like Planned Parenthood, now uh, National Abortion Federation, um, National Network of Abortion Funds, they really leaned off of what had been for decades their primary message, which was the coat hanger, this threat mm. that if abortions were not legal, women would resort to illegal surgical methods, um, such as like trying to penetrate their service and pierce the amniotic sac with long, sharp objects, which are incredibly dangerous. Yeah. You cannot perform an elite, uh, surgical, surgical abortion on yourself. You cannot uh, safely perform a surgical abortion if you don't know what you're doing. And we do know that before Roe, uh, many, many women suffered, died, were maimed, were, uh, you know, hurt in ways that they never recovered from, uh, from these kinds of surgical illegal abortions uh, performed insafely and incompetently. But, you know, the medication abortion revolution really changed what an illegal abortion looked like. Suddenly in the illegal abortion didn't need to be a back alley procedure that you paid a quack doctor for, that you were extorted for, that you had to put on a blindfold and get into the back of a stranger's car to get taken to. It could be something you ordered online, did safely at home with a medication that had a lower risk of serious side effects than Tylenol. So particularly post-Dobbs, you know, there's been this shift in the pro-choice movement to talk about illegal abortions first firstly they don't call them that anymore they call themselves managed which is you know um nicer sounding and they've really tr attempted to destigmatize these abortions which are a now a lot safer and b for more and more people the only abortions available right mm -hmm. uh and what you've also seen is a growing network of organizations and individuals who are sending these pills into states that have bans. Um, you have some people prescribing them across state lines by telemedicine. You have some people prescribing them and sending them in from abroad. Um, and you have uh, some people like, bringing them physically into states that have abortion bans to distribute to women in need there. Uh, and there is an attempt by the anti-choice movement to make that very, very legally dangerous. And this lawsuit is part of that uh, effort. So the litigants in this lawsuit, you know, um, they're 
a bunch of crack doctors, really. One of them is this guy who has been dedicating his career to try and create a reversal for abortion medication. Uh, and he tried to design a trial for this cockamamie uh, <laughs> regimen he had where he was like, well, you know, if mifepristone blocks progesterone, what if I just pump these patients full of tons and tons of progesterone? And he somehow got somebody to let him try this on human beings. And 25% of the patients in that trial had to be hospitalized. Like these women almost died. Yeah. Um. So, you know, it's, they're not uh they're not sending their best um he is <laughs> yeah he and his co uh litigants are claiming that mifepristone um is medically risky for women they're saying you know we see women in our practice who come in uh and they've taken these pills and you know they're bleeding and the fact is that like some women do wind up in the emergency room after taking abortion medication it's usually not because they have a serious complication overwhelmingly it's because they're scared um mm -hmm. and they are you know doing something that is illegal or quasi-legal that is highly stigmatized that they have had to do in secret because they are going to be stigmatized and then often often prosecuted if they if they tell anybody what they've done uh and they don't want to die then <laughs> they're you know they're bleeding a lot because you are inducing a miscarriage and miscarriages mean bleeding a lot and you know in most cases you want those people to go to the hospital like these are mm -hmm. women who have entirely good reasonable self-preserving instincts which is a go to a hospital and b tell your medical providers what you took right uh and we have to as the pro-choice movement we have sort of have to message around that say maybe mm -hmm. try not to go to the hospital Maybe don't tell your uh, medical providers everything, which is a horrible position that these patients have been put in because of the law. Yeah. So, you know, this lawsuit was brought. It's this like pretextual. It's not very um, honest, uh, yeah. but they went they went forum shopping. So the thing about Amarillo, Texas, where this lawsuit is being heard is that there is only one federal judge in that district. His name is Matthew Kismark. I think it's Matthew. His ju Judge Kismark. Yeah. Um, he's a Trump appointee. He's 45 years old. He's absolutely never going to die. Uh, and before he was appointed to the federal bunch by Donald Trump, he had a job at a far right litigation shop that routinely brought anti-abortion uh, lawsuits. So this is his whole career. You know, he recently ruled in favor of this like controlling Christian father who didn't want his daughters to be able to get birth control through federal Title X without his say-so, you know, so he also has limited teens' access to birth control pretty recently. And it's not really a question of whether or not this judge is going to rule in favor of the plaintiffs or not. He is. Um, he is going to issue an injunction that will bar Mifepristone um, from being recognized as fully approved by the FDA. Now, what that will mean in practice is still up in the air. He could issue a really maximalist opinion that removes misoprostone from the market nationally, which would create a crisis coast to coast in abortion care, um, not just in red states where abortion bans are in place, but also in blue states that are pretty protective of abortion. Um, or he could issue a more limited ruling that would bog the medication down in some, you know, tedious bureaucratic bullshit, but wouldn't necessarily uh, limit its availability. Here's my cat who's coming to the Zoom. <laughs> this is Mouse. She yes, yes. Listeners, uh, you can, if you hear the mouse, it's uh, <laughs> neither more nor not. So it's the cat. Mouse is also in favor of abortion access. Um, so, you know, the pro-choice movement and, you know, the medical establishment is sort of waiting on bated breath to see whether or not this guy removed misopristone from the market. Um, 
And there were several ways that the pro-choice movement could respond, right? You know, so uh, some providers will likely only perform surgical abortions, which are a lot more invasive. Mm-hmm. and a lot more resource intensive. Um, so in these blue states, every clinic is absolutely slammed with out-of-state patients who are traveling, you know, 2,000 miles, 500 miles to try and get an abortion someplace where they can legally get it. And these are clinics that are already have really high overhead. They're already dealing with harassment. They're often dealing with um, restrictive laws, even in relatively uh, liberal states that make their own jobs way harder. Um, And they just have way, way, way more patients than they can possibly accommodate. Right. Um, So needing to switch all of those to surgery abortions is going to create longer wait times, push treatment back in pregnancy, push a lot of people out of getting treatment at all. Um, Some providers will switch to a regimen for medication abortions that only uses one of the two drugs. Um, So mifepristone is fairly effective on its own, but the much more um, tried and true one drug abortion regimen is a misoprostol only regimen, um, which is a kind of abortion that doesn't block progesterone before it induces contractions. It just induces contractions. Um, you need more misoprostol. You uh, need more time. It's a lot more painful and it's a bit less effective, um, but you can do an abortion that way uh, fairly safely. And, you know, some people are going to be trafficking drugs into the country illegally, which is, you know, already happening to some degree and is going to become the only uh, option for medication abortion for more and more people. But the big risk when Kismark rules and potentially removes mifepristone from the market is that more women are going to, you know, they're going to get desperate. They're going to go back to those illegal surgical methods that we know are so dangerous. So it's Mm -hmm. like the threat is the threat of the return to the coat hanger era. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. So um, now I think some listeners might think, well, okay, let's say, um, uh, you know, this crazy judge in Texas, the red state makes this ruling. And even if, you know, he um, uh, makes it there, there's like uh, fallback positions legally, like in terms of, well, you know, like um, it'll be, sent up to a higher court and might be overturned there. And uh, perhaps um, uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, blue states can uh, pass further laws uh, to, to countermand that. Or um, I think that what we might have to address, though, is that this, this tactic of using the law is very effective, uh, not just um, for what they can get the law to do, but how they can terrify people, that there's a kind of chilling effect, uh, especially um, uh, not so much with women seeking abortion uh, as the sort of institutions uh, around it, sort of doctors, insurance companies, uh, pharmacies. uh, 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 There's a vast kind of infrastructure. And a lot of those uh, places tend to be very cautious about the law. And I think that the anti choice movement is very effective in saying it using the uncertainty of the law like they don't necessarily even have to get all their own way if they can create a situation where the law is um uncertain then a lot of these very cautious institutions uh will not provide um uh access to either abortion or to the sort of um um um, um medicine uh, that's uh, relevant here. Do you want to talk a little bit about this? This real kind of like chilling effect and the way that there's been a kind of very um, uh, 
uh, weaponization of the law uh, that's really created almost, I would say, a constitutional crisis as to where legal authority resides. Yeah. So you're pointing out something uh, really important, especially in the post-Dobbs landscape, which is that the anti-choice movement is relying a lot on confusion, fear, and preemptive compliance, right? So doctors are not lawyers. Um, I will say that every abortion provider I've ever met has, uh, by a, a dint of the requirements of their job, become very, very versed in, in legal proceedings. Mm. Uh, but uh, you also have a lot of situations where women are, you know, in Tennessee, this is happening once a week now, you have a woman who comes in in a medical emergency during pregnancy because she is developing preeclampsia or because she has a blood clot or, you know, God knows what number of complications and the treatment is a termination, but the mm. doctors are now faced with the choice between, you know, doing the medically right thing and protecting their patients and performing an abortion, which, which means committing a felony or, you know, allowing that patient to uh, sicken further. And they're choosing the latter, you know, because that seems safer to them. Uh, and they are unclear about what they're allowed to do. And these laws are written frankly, in deliberately vague ways that sort of obfuscate the boundaries of legal and illegal conduct because they want to chill the maximum amount of conducts, right? And, you know, you you said it's not necessarily about women seeking abortions that this, this conduct is where this conduct is being chilled, but that's actually not true. What you hear from abortion providers post-ops all the time is that they will be in a state where abortion is legal or they will be in a state where an abortion ban is currently enjoined by a judge and they will have patients call assuming that abortion is Ill illegal mm -hmm. and assuming that they have to travel out of state, even if, you know, in fact, they don't. Um, so there's confusion among patients. There's confusion among doctors. There's also a ton of, um, you know, sort of preemptive overcaution. You know, these doctors, these clinics, hospitals, pharmacies, they all have uh, legal boards which are advising them to take the maximally cautious, maximally self-protective stance, which is to deny all care um, that could endanger a fetus, even if that care is, you know, necessary to a woman patient's health, life, or thriving, right? Um, so you have issues like, uh, for instance, Walgreens. So recently, the Biden administration, the Biden administration is, you know, uh, sort of insufficient and, and tardy in their response to Dobbs. Um, they're doing not very much and they're really taking their time doing it. Uh, but they did try to, you know, marginally increase access to abortion medications um, by the directing by directing their FDA to allow these to be distributed at normal pharmacies, right? So part of the politics around abortion medication is that um, for a long time, you could only get it directly from a doctor, you couldn't get it from a retail pharmacy no medical reason for that to be the case. It was purely a matter of making it harder to get. Um, and the Biden administration, to their credit, uh, moved to remove that, right? Um, so suddenly, for a couple of days, it looked as if, you know, in states where abortion was legal, these medicines were going to be available for pickup at, you know, your corner pharmacy. Um, and then the anti-abortion movement struck you know they threatened lawsuits they threatened mass protests outside of like every retail walgreens chain um students for life is i think still like protesting outside of walgreens on like the first saturday of every month you know it's like it's silly shit but it works and walgreens yeah. said 
that they would not be um, distributing mifepristone because they don't want that headache, but they also don't want to have to change their policy when the Biden administration leaves office. Suddenly there is a Republican-controlled FDA, a Republican-controlled Department of Justice, and now they're getting sued, right? And there's actually additional efforts by the anti-choice movement to sort of make this preemptive compliance with the anti-choice position before that position becomes law more and more appealing, right? So there is a theory, there's reporting out in Vox this morning uh, about a theory being advanced by this lawyer named Jonathan Mitchell. I believe he was a Roberts clerk at one point, but he's most famous for being uh, the guy who concocted Texas's SB8 scheme, which is basically an abortion ban, a pre-row six-week abortion ban that was designed to evade judicial review. Um, you may have heard the clip of Elena Kagan at that oral argument going, some geniuses came up with this scheme and he's the some genius. Um, this guy, Jonathan Mitchell now, is advancing a theory that actors who perform abortions or provide abortion medication or facilitate abortions in some way while an abortion ban is enjoined, um, so while it's been like suspended from enforcement by a judge, can actually be sued or even prosecuted when that ban goes back into effect for conduct that they performed while it was legal, right? So it's this sort of abortion becomes illegal even while it's illegal. It's illegality is sort of suspended in time and it's like preemptive, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Well, and then you can be like, the theory is that you can be retroactively punished for stuff that was like legal at the time, but exactly. later becomes illegal. It's just like, you know. Um, right. And that, and that sort of, and, and you know, this is part of Walgreens thinking, right? They're like, we're not yeah. going to um, do this legal thing because it might be illegal later, which does raise the question, as you mentioned earlier, like, who decides what the law is? Is it Joe Biden's FDA or is it Jonathan Mitchell's FDA? Like, who is the regulatory power? Because right now, de facto, the regulatory power is with this anti-choice movement. It's not with the federal government. Uh, the federal government has proven that it doesn't quite have the ability to enforce its own policy in practice, right? But the anti-choice yeah. movement does. Yeah, no, no, that's right. I mean, I, I think um, in a previous podcast uh, with our, our mutual friend, Linda Hirschman, we had talked about um, the way in which the abortion issue, you know, parallels, you know, uh, uh, the great American struggle for freedom over slavery in the sense that the slave, uh, um, uh, the issue of slavery really raised the issue of like where power resides. And the um, uh, slaveocrats were never going to be happy with a kind of federal solution uh where uh, they could just have slaves and um, it would be illegal. Uh, 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 you could have abolition elsewhere because slaves could run away. And so you kind of had this kind of um, uh, situation where uh, uh, because this issue could not uh, uh, be localized, it had to become a national issue and it had to. Uh, so, you know, you, you had things like the Fugitive Slave uh, Law Act and, you know, various attempts uh, um uh, by the um, uh, slaveocracy, even before the Civil War, to impose their will on the whole nation, to kind of like, you know, restrict freedom of speech in terms of like abolitionist literature, whether it should be allowed to go through um, the federal mail. Uh, so I think the, you know, there's a kind of striking parallel here um, uh, with the um, abortion issue that if you have uh, the sort of anti-choice side is so fanatically committed 
to like imposing its will that it, it will like you know uh try to use whatever levers of power to supersede authority and it really becomes an issue of who rules like like who you know who decides ultimately uh and i, I think you know like if we use return to the slavery analogy i mean like this is you know like lincoln's great question like you know like you know do, if, uh, is this something that we're going to let um, you know the courts decide you know like in, uh, will justice tanny decide in dred scott or is this actually you know like if we're like a republic where the people rule then you know like this is ultimately a democratic issue and and this might be like a, a good kind of place to you know draw the the larger politics of this because i do think that we're heading towards a kind of battle over this fundamental issue of who rules, uh, and that the uh, anti-choice side has a certain amount of power in the courts, uh, thanks to all the judges that Trump and before him Bush appointed, uh, and you know, like they dominate in the Supreme Court. Um, but you know, like you know, as Lincoln said, and after him, Franklin Roosevelt said, you know, like the courts are not the final arbiter of this thing. This is a democracy, and the people rule. Um, and so it seems to me like the the solution to a lot of the stuff and the fight that's coming has to be that, like, you know, um, the Democrats, uh, as tardy as Joe Biden is, have to, like, you know, like take up this issue and you know push for a democratic resolution. So, so do you want to have some thoughts on that? I mean, I agree with you. I'm a little. I'm always a little wary of using slavery as a metaphor. I tend to think chattel yeah. slavery just like fails as a metaphor, like chattel yeah. slavery in the Holocaust. Like by the yeah. time you're, you know, drawing those. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I, yeah, yeah, no. sound like a quack, but uh, you're not. No, 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 no. But, but I, like, I mean, sort of yeah, I should be clear. Like I'm not saying, like, <laughs> equating the two uh, struggles in terms of like uh, 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 saying that they're the same thing, except that in terms of American politics, like there is a way in which like these kind of fundamental issues about like, you know, human rights and who rules can never be settled in the sort of patchwork way. And that the, ultimately comes down to an issue of democratic control. No, I absolutely agree. Right. So like uh, abortion is a question of are we going to endow women with the full dignity of citizenship? Are we allow mm. are going to allow them to be adults with, uh, you know, self-determination over their own lives, um, control over the course of what happens to their bodies. Um, and, you know, these are, these are questions that are fundamental to citizenship and have been fundamental to citizenship in the past in all kinds of ways, you know. Um, and then there's also the question of, are we going to allow the majority to be ruled by the minority, right? So you do have issues now of red states trying to extend their statutory control beyond their borders. Uh, you have issues of, you know, popular will and popular sovereignty really being undermined and straight out undone by these unelected courts. Uh, so, you know, you have policy positions that are, are not being voted for <laughs> being enforced upon people, you know, and, um, there's a reason the anti-choice movement had to win through the unelected courts. It's because they could not win at the ballot box, right? Um, and you can see, frankly, that they are undermining the democratic process in all kinds of ways and, and undermining, you know, what we would think of as sort of routine, healthy checks and balances procedures in all kinds of ways to try and keep abortion bans in place and to try and make sure that they're enforced. So, you have states that are trying to prohibit uh, ballot initiatives 
trying to make abortion specifically immune from ballot initiatives, trying to raise the threshold uh, by which ballot initiatives need to win, because all of these red states saw what happened in Michigan in November, where in a ballot initiative on abortion rights not only won resoundingly, but drove Democrats to a like huge victory in that state, right? Um, so they're trying to get rid of ballot initiatives. In Texas and some other places, you see um, state legislatures really trying to um, limit prosecutorial discretion, because in these uh, urban areas, to more democratic, more liberal leaning kind of um, cities in these red states, you'll have prosecutors, DAs running on, I will not prosecute abortion. Uh, and now these state legislators are threatening to, you know, fine and imprison uh, these DAs for every abortion case that they don't, that they don't charge, you know. Um, and you have overall, like a, an attempt to shift power to state houses and to federal courts, because that's where there is um, pretty robust Republican capture, right? Uh, and that is, you know, you can't exclude half the population from uh, full political life without <laughs> resistance. Like that is, abortion already creates this um, instability, even if you could contain it, right? Like it's, mm. it's um, not a supportable way of life, uh, but also, um, you can't have these laws extending beyond their jurisdictions, these laws sort of negating the power of other officials, mm. uh, these laws sort of um, being suspended and enforced, not regard to popular will, not regard to like judicial procedure, but regard to like the threats of these thugs who are going to show up outside your Walgreens franchise if you don't do what they say. You know, it's um, it's really a threat broadly to the rule of law and to the constitutional order. Um, as well as to our conceptions of what, you know, the dignity of citizenship should entail. So, yeah, I don't think it's a sustainable en enterprise. And by the way, neither did the anti-choice movement, you know, all this crap that they were pulling. Uh, I'm being, I'm cursing a lot on this podcast. I apologize, but I feel like I can do it on the time of monsters, but you know, they were um, for decades had this charade that their opposition to Roe was a matter of states' rights. And as soon as Roe is gone, they're gunning yeah. for a national ban. They're gunning for, like, you know, uh, coming for the FDA, trying to take away Mifepristone in these states that um, mm. that want access to it. So, you know, there's not um, not a ton of regard for popular sovereignty here. And also, also of course, not a ton of regard for the individual so sovereignty of, of women over their own lives. Yeah, no, no, I think that's right. I, and I, so I think that, I mean, the lesson to kind of draw out is um the anti-choice movement you know as it tries to, as emboldened and tries to really push its agenda um use the new Dobbs environment to push its agenda in a maximum way is necessarily in conflict with democracy uh because you know what they want is not popular uh it's not popular like even in red states uh and so they they do have to use um uh whatever anti uh uh, democratic means that they have at their disposal. Um, but I think that also points to, you know, like where the maybe the solution or the remedy uh, is. And, and this is why, you know, like you were, the civil war analogy kind of uh, falters here because I think that there's actually a remedy that is you know far short of having to fight a civil war, uh, which is like you know use the actual democratic power of the federal government. That um, let's suppose uh, the Republic uh, Democrats run in 2024, uh, 
on uh you know like restoring uh row or even going beyond row like really restoring a robust uh reproductive uh, uh rights uh and they they go to the american people and say you know give us congress give us the house back uh give us more in the senate give us a presidency and we will like you know in la enact laws to uh to do this and you know like of course a lot of people will say that you know um well uh, um, a congressional solution uh, only goes so far because the Republicans still have the courts. But then you can also have a battle over the courts because there's ways in which Congress can limit the power of the courts to decide these things and can like actually like, you know, pare back um, that authority. And then also maybe actually change the nature of the courts, uh, you know, like by actually, you know, uh, putting in judges that are not like this, uh, uh, this guy in Amarillo, uh, you know, uh, so, so it really becomes, um, so Leah, let's say the Democrats do uh, uh, take this and, and, and has this, like put abortion at the forefront, but also link abortion with, you know, this larger uh, issue of democracy uh, or, or this also equally large issue of democracy, which is also equally popular and had a real effect in the uh, 2022 midterms. And just uh, say, you know, we have these two very strong issues, abortion and democracy, they go hand in hand, you know, give us the power to do this. Uh, what do you think about that pitch? Great idea. I don't know if uh, Joe Biden will buy it. Uh, you know, like, I think you're right. Like abortion and democracy, they are animating issues. They are, I think, in a lot of ways, you very clearly articulated, they're really the same issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's about the dignity of citizenship. It's about self-rule. And Republicans are opposed to both. Um, and, you know, this, as you mentioned, was a huge driving factor for uh Democratic victories and then Republican underperformance in the midterms. Like that was not supposed to even be a close election. And the Republicans could barely eke out a control of the House of Representatives. And it's such a narrow majority. And they're so um, divided and, and crazy that they're not able to function anything with it. And that's because of these two issues, abortion and democracy and, and self-rule, self-determination uh, for individuals and for, and for, you know, the polity writ large. Um, I think it's a winning issue. I think that the Democrats are still afraid of it. And I don't understand why. I don't know how much more data and experience they need yeah. uh, to demonstrate to them that abortion is a, is a politically winning issue. But, you know, these we've talked about this before. I came on, I think, your podcast um, right after the midterms. And we talked about, you know, the Republicans have leaned so far into their base um, they've leaned so far into culture war grievance and it's creepy and it's isolating and people don't like the vision of the future uh, that they are putting forward of this, you know, regressive, narrow minded, terrified, violent, um, you know, white <laughs> uh, world that that Republicans want America to become. Um, and I think that there is a way for Democrats to stop fighting the Republicans on the Republicans' own terms. Like, stop litigating about cancel culture. Stop, uh, you know, trying to prove that you're adequately masculine to some, like, coal miner outside of Pittsburgh who you just made up in your mind, you know, like, or steel, steel worker outside of Pittsburgh that you just made up in your mind. You know, this guy doesn't exist. Um, or if he does, he's not voting for you. Um, you have to 
you know, the Democrats really need to accept that their base is women. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's sort of outside of the political strategic mind that is dominated in the in the Democratic Party. They're thinking very hard and, and almost obsessively about white working class men. Um, but I think they need to, you know, think harder about what um, a message that would appeal to women voters would look like and, and be willing to pursue it because that's who's who's voting for them and that's who they need to turn out. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think there might be a tension within the party. I mean, the party has different factions or elements, and there is a kind of sort of a consultant class that is very much, uh, as you outlined, very uh, uh, obsessed with old fights and has a kind of vision of the electorate that's old. But, you know, within the Democratic Party as well, like, I think a lot of the victories in 2022 came from the fact that there are robust social movements, uh, not least of which is the the pro-choice movement, that uh, are able to push the party to go much further. So, um, yeah, I I mean, I do think that the sort of uh, messaging uh, that I outlined is unlikely under Joe Biden, (laughs) but one can sort of foresee maybe in the future some Democrats of the Democratic Party, like making that argument. And I, I would want to suggest, like, I think it's a um, an ar- argument that has uh, the merits of both being true uh, and popular and likely to be successful. So uh, I, I want to, you know, yeah, you were saying like, I, we, I always have you on to have bad news, but I, I want to offer like, <laughs> the possibility of a, a utopian future. Yeah, yeah, we always have to end on that note. And, you know, in, in fairness, some people are doing this. I'm thinking of Gretchen yeah. Wimmer, who did this very well in Michigan. She had the bump of the abortion referendum, which I think every Democrat running at the state level should do everything in their power to get yeah. an abortion <laughs> referendum on your ballot, because that's yeah. how you win re-election. Um, but, you know, there is a there, there's always been kind of a needless divide in the Democratic like pundit and consultant class between people who advocate for, you know, economic issues and people who advocate for social issues. And they're not really substantively, substantively different. You know, that's, that's old left thing or new left thinking that, you know, we need to move beyond because it's not 1970 anymore. Um, These are, these are interlocking issues and you can pitch them together. And in fact, I think you have to. Yeah, no, that's that's also is a really excellent point because I think that was also um, that is a major kind of stumbling block. So, so on this relative note of optimism, <laughs> I want to thank once again Mara Donigan, uh, frequent guest, uh, and hopefully will be uh, uh, frequent returning guest in the future. Uh, always, uh, even when we're dealing with uh, these dark subjects, uh, uh, very uh, invigorating uh, to talk to you. Thank you so much, Pete. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.